Good morning. My name is Kara Blankenship, and this morning we'll be reading Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now and hear it speak millennia and millennia and millennia, truths that have been unchanged since the dawn of time, may we receive it in our hearts this morning and be changed by it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The world is full of wonders and mysteries. There are great natural wonders in this world, like the Grand Canyon, the Redwood Forest, Niagara Falls. There are also many man-made wonders in the world, like the Great Pyramids, Machu Picchu, the Eastern Island Heads, (laughs) great man-made wonders. Many of these wonders are also surrounded in mystery. Who exactly built them, and how, and why? It's easy to focus on the big, mysterious wonders of the world and completely overlook the small ones, the everyday wonders, the commonplace mysteries. Reflecting upon the commonplace wonders all around us, Proverbs 30 says this, There are three things which are too wonderful for me. Four, which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a maid. The Bible acknowledges that there are wonders all around us in sky and rock and sea. There are wonderful mysteries all around us, not the least of which is this male and female relationship not least of which is this relational dance we call marriage. If we're to to pierce the veil into anything wonderful and mysterious, we need to ask the same sort of questions that we would ask about the Great Pyramids or the Easter Island heads. Who exactly built this and how and why? To answer those questions about marriage, we need to go back to the beginning. To delve into these mysteries, we have to go back to the story God has given us 
about the first man and first woman. In other words, we need to go back to Genesis. Genesis is the story of our beginnings. It's the story that makes sense of our story. It's the story that shows why this male-female relationship is such a wonderfully mysterious thing. Such an exciting and compelling and innately good thing. To look into these wonders, we need to begin with a wedding in a garden where God himself presides like a father giving away the first bride, tying the knot between the first man and the first woman. But before we dive into this origin story, let me first address those who might be skeptical of this story. I assume every Sunday that there are people here who are skeptics, who are on a journey, wrestling and weighing and considering, are these things true? If that's you, I am so glad you found us. I'm so glad you're here. We're delighted you're here. If that's not you, but it is your friends, I hope you know that you can bring them here. I hope they will come to know that this is a safe place for them to ask their toughest questions. We welcome hard questions because we wholeheartedly believe that the Bible story is not only good and beautiful, but it is true. And truth can stand up to any amount of scrutiny, any amount of skepticism. I'm not afraid of probing questions, and hopefully you're not either, because I'm about to ask you one. Are you ready? If you're here this morning and you don't believe what Genesis says, that there is a God who created all things, including humanity, do you know what your alternatives are? You only have two. There are only two alternatives to what Genesis claims. And both of these alternatives require you to embrace mystery with great abandon. Both of these alternatives require seemingly great leaps of faith on your behalf. Let's consider them really quickly. Alternative number one is this. Eternal matter. Eternal matter. If you put the tape of time into the VCR and press rewind, you guys know what a VCR is, right? Rewind. You might rewind back a million years, 10 billion years, 100 trillion years, a trillion trillion years, and you would never reach a beginning. The tape would just keep going back. There is always something there. Matter has always existed in some form in the universe. There never was a beginning. You keep rewinding forever, and there is always something. That's alternative number one. Matter is eternal. Not many people today go for alternative number one because it's seen as being anti-scientific. The science of our day says there was a beginning. In that case, you move on to alternative number two. You press the rewind button on the tape of time, and eventually you arrive at a time where there was nothing. No atoms, no particles, no energy. Completely nothing. Because if there is anything, you're back to option number one. And so you keep rewinding until you find nothing at all. The problem with this alternative should be obvious if you think about it for two seconds. 
you got to contend with this massive mystery. How does everything come from nothing? How does an entire universe full of matter come from nothing at all? No particles, no energy, no anything. How does everything come from nothing? And you and I have no real conception of just how much everything is. Take just the crazy amount of matter that is in a single star. Take just a bucket of that matter from the heart of one star. So much matter that it would outweigh the world. The mystery of how just one bucket of something comes from nothing is too much for you. It's too much for me. It's too much for anyone. Many people accept option number two, but it's because they refuse to think about it. Because if they did, they'd immediately see that it's illogical. Everything from nothing is logically absurd. So, if alternative number one, eternal matter, is anti-scientific, and alternative number two, everything from nothing, is logically absurd, what are we left with? What is the only other game in town, folks? We're left with Genesis. We're left with the answer humanity finds itself predisposed and hardwired to believe. Not that there are eternal particles, but there is an eternal person. The thing we innately feel is true also happens to be the option that makes the most sense. There is an eternal, self-originating person who creates all things, who mysteriously makes mankind in his image so that we are also capable of thought and design and creativity, so that we are capable of creating man-made wonders as well as standing in awe of God's wonders. All three alternatives, eternal God, eternal matter, or everything from nothing, all three alternatives come with a certain level of mystery attached to them. You can't escape it. So it's not a question of whether you will embrace mystery or not, but a question of which mystery will you embrace. Which mystery makes the most sense? Which mystery makes the most sense of life? And which mystery will you build your life upon? Which mystery holds out the greatest promise of goodness and beauty, of purpose and joy? If you're a skeptic, I want you to spend a little time thinking about that. Because I'll guarantee you that one day you will wish you had thought much more about which mystery you built your life upon. You'll say to yourself, too late, I really wish I had thought about this. Think about it now. And as part of your thinking about this now, let me present you with Genesis and the story God has to tell us about the mysteries that surround our origins, about the mysteries of this male-female relationship of marriage. Let's see together it's this origin story. And if this origin story doesn't Scratch the kind of itch that you have. Is, isn't this the kind of mystery and answers your heart have been searching for? We're beginning our journey today one chapter into the story already. 
If we were to go back and read Genesis chapter 1, we would see how God makes everything from nothing and declares it to be good. In chapter 2, the story backs up and refocuses just on the creation of the first man and woman, with God declaring that one thing is not good. We see that in verse 18. Look, at, look with me in verse 18, chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. We see here the first of three headings I'll give you as we move through this story. In verse 18, we discover this mystery. We, we are created for communion. Created for communion. We're not made to be alone. Even in an all-good world, it is not good to live alone in isolation. We were created with a capacity for communion and fellowship. We were designed with relationships in mind. Why is that, you may ask? The real answer may lie deeper than you would guess. This mystery runs deep. It may lie at the very foundation of reality itself. If God is the foundation of all reality, if he is the fountainhead from which all else flows, then our capacity for communion and our design for relationships is meant to tell us something profound about our maker. Our capacity for relationship is a reflection of our creator's eternal capacity. Think about it. God has always been in relationship with himself. Within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There never was a time when the Father wasn't enjoying a relationship with the Son, in loving communion through the Spirit. That's why the ancient creeds of Christianity call Jesus the eternally generated Son of God. He's begotten, not made. He isn't a creature. He is the eternal reflection. He is the self-conception of God. He is the eternal radiance of his Father's glory. And that's why Jesus can say things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And I and the Father are one. God has always been in relationship within himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There never was a time when divine communion wasn't taking place with one massively important exception. That's at the very heart of the gospel, and I bet you already know what it is. At the cross, as God's Son becomes our sin bearer, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, in that one moment, in all eternity past and all that is to come, communion is broken. Fellowship is broken. Love turns to wrath. Jesus stands more alone and isolated on the cross than anyone else has ever been. This second Adam stands more alone than the first ever did. He stands alone as he stands for us all. His perfect communion with the Father is broken so that ours might be restored. He is cut off so that we might come near. Communion is at the heart of the gospel because 
communion is at the heart of reality. And communion is at the heart of the reality because communion is at the heart of God who has shaped reality. It is not good for man to be alone. He was created for communion with someone. With someone who is like him, but distinct from him. With someone who is the same, but also different. With someone who is equal in value, is just as human, but is also different in form and function. Is anyone else picking up on the Trinity vibes here? Same essence, but different. Same value, but different role. Same capacities, but a different person. The language we use to talk about the triune God is also the same language we frequently use to talk about gender. Kind of wondrous and mysterious, isn't it? How these things fit together. As we see in Genesis chapter 2, none of the other creatures that God made fit the bill for communion. God knows this already, but he wants Adam to see it for himself, to experience that the search will be in vain. Sometimes you don't know how just, just how good something is until you've explored all the other alternatives. Some of you don't know just how good Christianity is Because you were born into happy Christian families and haven't explored all the other alternatives. God wants Adam to see that he was created for communion and for this. Here's our second heading. We're created for communion and we're created for dominion. Created for dominion. Look at verses 19 and 20. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. I've already said that this episode with the animals is meant to establish that there isn't a suitable helper with 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 whom Adam can have communion. There isn't an equal, like father and son. There isn't found a capacity for fellowship, like with son and spirit. These verses describe the journey to this realization, something God already knew fully, but Adam needed to learn experientially. This episode of naming the animals is about that, but it is also about dominion. Naming every animal is an exercise in dominion. Because you might ask, why doesn't God just tell the man what to call each animal? It'd save a lot of time, probably. I mean, after all, God already knows what name Adam will give them. Before a word is on my tongue, David says, behold, you know it all. None of this is a surprise to God. He knows everything. God is not waiting and wondering what name is going to come out of Adam's mouth. But... He is giving Adam an opportunity to do something very God-like. The man is arranging and attaching names to what God has already spoken into being. God is the creator. Adam is acting here as a sub-creator. God created the garden. Adam tends and cultivates what is already there. God created the animals Adam attaches names to what God has made. 
this dominion is very godlike and is connected to the talk about the image of God in Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26 of chapter 1 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. There's a clue here about communion in the Trinity. Let us make man in our image and in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over, and over all the earth and every creeping thing on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Closely connected in the text itself to the image of God in mankind is this idea of dominion. Let us make God in our image and let them, male and female, rule over everything. At least part of the image of God in man and woman is this exercise of dominion over creation for the good of creation. Adam and Eve were put in the garden to rule over it, to care for it as God's stewards, as God's vice regents in the world. If you're looking for an expression of this in literature, you won't find a better one than Tom Bombadil and Goldberry in The Lord of the Rings. Tom is master because he knows the names of all things. He knows the song of creation, and he sings it over tree and rock and river. He fears nothing because he can name everything. Tom and Goldberry, as husband and wife, order their domain, not for selfish gain, but for the good of the world itself. Tom and Goldberry are a picture of what Adam and Eve were supposed to be. They were meant to master their domain and order it for the good of all. For the good of the garden, for the good of the animals, for the good of their descendants. Their work was worship. And they were the masters because they named all the things in their dominion. Now, you may not use this word very much. You may not use the word dominion in your everyday life. But I bet you use its derivative form. Do you know what that is? Domestic. Domestic, same root word, same meaning. Your domestic life is the place where you exercise dominion. It's the place where you rule and order things for the good and for the flourishing of all under your charge. Domestic life is a big place where we reflect forth the image of God in us. And God knew it wasn't good for Adam to go at it alone, all by himself, to exercise dominion all alone. He needed a suitable helper to share this dominion with him to work the garden side by side, to help order domestic life for the good of all. Domestic life for the Christian ought to be full of wonder. G.K. Chesterton says we ought to find it to be the wildest of adventures, domestic life. When you cut your grass or trim your hedges, you are doing something, Christians understand, that is very godlike, ruling, and subduing your lawn. When you plant a garden, you are doing something mankind was meant to do, 
making creation more fruitful. When you order your home and make it a welcoming place for the weary, you are doing something very godlike, ruling over your domain for the good of others. When you pick up those toys for the 10,000th time, you are doing something very godlike, bringing order to chaos. You're acting out part of the image of God in man and woman by exercising dominion in your domestic life. There are good and beautiful things here. There are wonders here. Many people feel it. I think many people feel it, although they don't know why. Or they don't know that Genesis tells us why. Where does the joy come from in tending a garden or training a dog? Or ordering your domestic life? Only those who know Genesis pierce the veil of this mystery and begin to see the answer. These things bring joy because they are echoes of Eden. They are glimpses of what we were made for. But through sin and disobedience, largely lost. Even though sin has broken so much, we can still catch glimpses of the lost good we find in these things. A good dominion is an echo of Eden, but so is a good marriage. A good marriage. With that, we come to our third and final heading. We're created for communion, we're created for dominion, and we are created for oneness. Created for oneness. Look at the end of verse 20. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh of that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Notice here, God doesn't form the woman out of the dust like he did the animals or Adam. The female is made from finer stuff, from something personal. The very insides, the man's very insides are taken out. Observing this, Matthew Henry famously said, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him or out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. This feels fitting and wonderfully poetic, doesn't it? This act is what gives rise to the first poem in history. You have it here, Genesis 2. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, the very first poetic expression. It's worth noting that this poetry enters into the world before Sin enters into the world. Poetry precedes sin. Consider the implications of that. 
for a minute. Romantic poetry precedes the fall, y'all. It precedes because it is another part of the image of God in us. This ability to create and work with words in a way that connects with the heart is part of the image of God. Poetry comes before the fall, and so does marriage. Here we see it. Here, God presides over the first marriage as he gives the first man and woman to one another. And verse 24 says that the union God establishes here sets a precedent for all to follow. Verse 24 says, For, for this reason, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There is a oneness created by marriage. If I were to officiate your wedding, I talk about this oneness as part of the ceremony. So prepare yourself, Chandler, Allison, prepare yourselves. I talk about this. I talk about the oneness of love, a oneness of body. There's a legal oneness with fortunes and estates combined. And for the Christian, there is also a oneness of future hope. There's a shared ultimate destiny. And because there's a shared end of life, there's also a shared mission in life. So there is a lot going on here when it comes to oneness. It is not just sex, but it certainly includes sex. Remember where we, where we began. There are wonders and mysteries all around us. And some things are too wonderful and too holy to speak of. To speak of much. To speak of too much. But I will point this out. We've already noted that poetry precedes the fall. That marriage exists before mankind's rebellion. And if marriage predates sin, do you know what else does? Sex. Sex existed before sin. That's why in poetry, in marriage, and in sex, we often catch glimpses of the paradise we lost. In them, we get small tastes of the bliss that we gave up on in the garden. When poetry, marriage, sex are as good as they can get, we sense in them the echoes of Eden, the good pleasures of a paradise that we forfeited. We lost Eden. We lost paradise because of sin. And it's because of sin that poetry fails to move us. It's because of sin that marriages fall apart. It's because of sin that sex appears unholy. And we bring tons of baggage and fears and false expectations into our marriage beds. And if we've had sexual experiences before marriage, we probably also bring a lot of hurt and shame as well. I've said it before, and I'll probably say it again at our marriage conference this weekend. Sex is like fire. Fire in the fireplace makes domestic life warm and oh so very pleasant. But outside the fireplace, a fire will hurt you and scar you 
as well as burn down your house. The proper place for a fire is within the intended boundary of a fireplace. The proper place for the oneness of sex, the oneness we were created for, is within the intended boundary of covenant love and faithfulness. The marriage covenant originates in Eden, before the fall, and it serves as the original safeguard of love. It serves as the original confines for the flame. The marriage covenant is what enables us to give of ourselves without fear, to be vulnerable, to be exposed, to be naked, naked, and not ashamed. Marriage matters. And if I've whetted your appetite to press more deeply into these things, please, just register for this weekend, today. <laughs> it's an obvious application. But let me give you one more in closing, one more application. And here I want to speak to those who aren't married, to those who wonder if they will ever be married, to those who have been married but now find themselves widows or widowers, to those who had a spouse who broke their covenant and walked away. Or maybe you were that covenant-breaking spouse. You've heard this morning that we were created for oneness, and you wonder, is that for me? Is that for me? The good news is that Jesus has answered that question with a resounding yes. Yes, you were created for oneness with him. Oneness with Christ. And this is far, far, far better. You were made for a marriage-like relationship with God himself. The New Testament pulls back the veil on this amazing mystery. Paul reveals that marriage is only a picture. It's a picture of the kind of relationship God has always intended to have with his people. This is a wondrous and mysterious thing. Marriage seems largely designed by God to give us categories to understand and anticipate the oneness we will have with the Lord. So, if you don't get to participate in the picture, believer, that's okay. You will participate in the reality that the picture only dimly reflects. If you don't experience the shadow, take heart you will experience the substance, Christian. If you don't know the foretaste now, don't fret. You will taste the fullness at the marriage supper of the Lamb one day. And until that day, single person, you can press without distraction into the open arms of the greatest lover of your soul. Jesus offers us all communion right now. He offers you oneness and fellowship right now. Just embrace by faith the one who says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. If that's not a picture of communion, then I do not know what communion is. Jesus promises us fellowship and oneness. 
And we need only open the door of our hearts to him in any given moment to have it. What a wonderfully mysterious thing. The world is full of wonders and mysteries. Whether or not you get to experience all the mysteries of marriage in this life, Christian, by God's grace and kindness, you will know the wonder of marriage to Christ, both now and forevermore. Father, as we take in your word, process and digest it now, may it fall upon hearts desiring to be changed and impacted by it. May the skeptical see in your design, in your word, its goodness, its beauty, its wealth, its riches, questions their hearts have long been asking, answers are found here, better answers than than we could hope for. Lord, may you be drawing people to yourself and to faith in the Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray for those longing for communion, longing for oneness with another. May they find it ultimately in Christ, full satisfaction with a Savior who is full of love, compassion, who is sinless, who will never walk away, who never breaks his covenant. His banner over us is love forevermore. May every heart embrace him today as husband, as savior, as king. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.